The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. 2 Samuel 11 says this, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one night or one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed with him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he, may be, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king, king's anger arises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. 
The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. There's a a tremendous problem in our society. I know I don't need to educate you, and I want to say before I even begin that I recognize that when a text like this comes up, a lot of parents with their kids next to them are very concerned. (laughs) And they're like, here kid, color this for the entire service. And so my promise to you is to be uh, as, you know, only graphic as necessary, is absolutely necessary. And, uh, and so I'm aiming straight at the adults, and I'm depending on you adults, as always, to take this home and distill it for your kids. Don't deprive them of godly teaching at home just because the, the text is uncomfortable. Let's confront these things head on. This is the only way uh, this is ever staved, is with gospel truth. So let's, let's commit to doing that. Now I've just ensured that your kids are going to pay extra attention, I'm sure. But there's a tremendous problem in our society today that I probably don't need to educate you on. I'm sure you're well aware of that people can indulge their lust with relative secrecy. Just statistically, 2.5 million people visit the world's most lewd websites every 60 seconds. 2.5 million people every 60 seconds. That's 28,000 users per second. Not clicks. Users. People. 28,000 per second. An estimated 40 million users in the U.S. alone consume this content regularly. On these sites is the ability to indulge every twisted fantasy that could ever come to your imagination. And the worst part about it is, with the advent of the smartphone in 2007, it all of a sudden became anonymous. Virtually anonymous. It's plaguing our society. It's plaguing our churches. It's plaguing men and women. Anecdotally speaking, if I sit down with a person today in counseling, I begin with the assumption that there either has been an addiction in the past to this kind of material, or there is currently in their life an addiction. And 99 times out of 100... I'm going to be right. This problem is not something that's going to easily go away. But it's something that comes to the fore 
in this text where David is dealing with this same kind of temptation, but in a much more real sort of way, if you want to put it that way. It's worth taking a second to just remember where these twisted desires come from, because I think they come to to really bear on our text this morning. Remember, God's design in the garden was for man and woman to rule the earth as His ambassadors. And there was an expectation placed on them of righteousness since they were representatives of Him. They needed to represent Him righteously since He is righteous. And they were were to do this by obeying a very simple command. Do not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. Genesis 2 ends with this sentence, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It depicts exactly what their state was, innocent. But then chapter 3 comes along. And we get this in verse 1, which should be on the screen behind me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. There's many things that we could say about this scene, for sure. We could spend weeks on this scene alone, absolutely positively. But there are a couple of things that are of particular import for our passage today. Obviously, you see the couple is engaging in conversation, first of all, with the serpent. Now, I'm not the only person that has surely recognized what we probably all have a question about, which is, A talking serpent. Surely, I don't know what Adam and Eve's life was like on the regular every day, but surely they can't have encountered talking serpents all the time. And Eve seems to not bat an eye, but not only that, she engages the serpent in conversation and allows it some entertaining thought. Now, There's one thing that should be abundantly clear. Perhaps death has not come into the garden yet. But it is abundantly clear that God has given you a command and anything that comes in that seeks to usurp that command or to overthrow God's authority in your mind needs to be excommunicated from the garden. It has no place in the garden. So the fact that they're entertaining the very notions that the serpent is putting out is troubling, to say the least. The second 
we obviously see she is lured closer to the tree, isn't she? She says, which wasn't a part of the original command, neither shall you touch it. So presumably, she's a good distance away. But at some point in this conversation, she sees that the tree is good for food and a delight and is able to make one wise and it's desired for food. So she's at least at some point lured closer to the tree. We also see that she pridefully thinks that perhaps she knows better than God. God has given a clear command, don't eat. And instead, she has said, what's the problem? Her wisdom is now taking over God's wisdom that he had originally given. And the the fourth thing is perhaps not so obvious, but does seem obvious to me. There may be a, a subtle hint that God's not here. I mean, what he doesn't know won't hurt him. And it seems obvious that this is the case because as soon as they take the bite, they realize they're naked. They realize what they've done. And proof positive of that is when they hear him coming, they take off running, hiding behind a tree as if they could, right? That'll stop him. He'll never find me here. Crazy. David, in our passage this morning, is now God's representative of his kingdom. Where Adam and Eve were initially in creation but had sinned, David is now the representative of God's kingdom. But just like the original couple, David will likewise fall to the same kind of lust that was there in their eyes. David is, in a sense, the new Adam. And as the new Adam, he is blessing people in the previous chapters with the blessings of his kingdom. Remember Mephibosheth? He brings Mephibosheth, the crippled person, into his kingdom and says, you will eat at my table always. He tries to bless the pagan nations that are around him by honoring the death of a pagan king. And it doesn't turn out so well, not for the Ammonites or for David's men, but needless to say, his attempt is to bless as God's representative, as the new Adam, he is trying to bless the nations around, both inside and outside of Israel. But now we get to where David, like Adam and Eve before, where David falls. This passage is really in three movements, and the first is David's fall. We read David's fall here at the very beginning in verse 1. Read read there with me. In the spring of the year... The time, when kings go, uh, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his servant, with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And, he said, and one said... Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. David first sends his military 
commanders and his army. And he, it, the text even says, and all Israel. He sends all of Israel. So the cities are relatively vacant. vacant. Obviously, we see some servants that are around David. But for the most part, the cities have emptied out of all the fighting men. And they are gone into battle. Now, this, I know there's a lot that's made about this. And at first, at least, it's not particularly troubling, namely because David has done this before. In the last chapter, in chapter 10, verse 2, if you'll just flip back there with me, it says, And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, and his, as his father has dealt loyally with me. So David sent his servants to console him concerning his father, and David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. And, when, and then in verse 7 and 8, and when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men. So the Ammonites are gathering for battle, and David sends his military out, and he stays home. And the Ammonites, it says in verse 8, came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate in the Syrians of Zobah and Rehov, and the men of Tov and Makkah were themselves in the open country. So they're all gathering for battle, and David had sent his military out to fight them. Now, that changes at the end of the chapter, in verse 17, if you'll look at it. It says, And when it was told to David, he gathered all Israel and crossed the Jordan and came to Halam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed the Syrians, the men of 700 chariots, 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobak, the, com the commander of the army, so that he died there. So there's a difference that takes place by the end of the passage. So David sends his military out, and then it, it seems like his military comes back, and it's almost like Joab says, you got to be out here on this one, all right? And so David goes, okay, well, and he goes out there, and he leads his men, and there's a change that takes place where he goes with his army, and he fights before them. So it's with some precedent that David had sent his army, then sometimes he had gone with his army, so it's at least not initially troubling that David is sent home. And I wouldn't ordinarily think much about it, except for the fact that the author draws your attention to it in this chapter, that it's normally the time when kings go out to battle. But David stayed home in Jerusalem. So that's a little troubling now. It's a little bit different tone that has changed from chapter 10 to chapter 11, where David has now stayed home, and it's almost like the author is drawing our attention to a prideful attitude that David has about the battle that's at hand. That he almost seems like this war with the Ammonites is a foregone conclusion that he's going to take their land and put them to heel. Case in point is later on in the story when Uriah the Hittite comes back to visit David. He comes to David and David wants him to go about his normal lifestyle, which it seems like David is living. So he's got his military out there on the forefront, and David is back home living in the lap of luxury. Somebody peel me a grape. That kind of idea. And when Uriah comes back home, he's like, here, have some grapes. In fact, go home to your wife and have more grapes. So it's, it's almost like the attitude that David has about this whole process of war is very concerning. And it's a sign of damage that's being done to God's kingdom. Not only that, but Uriah in verse 11 essentially educates David on how he should be behaving. 
All of your men are out there on the front lines. Joab, all the people that I fight with on a regular basis are out there on the front lines. They're living in tents. The Ark of the Covenant is out there with your people. Am I to be here eating grapes? No. I'm going to sleep on the floor just so that I can be like them and maintain that battle-hardened mentality. Now, Uriah, to be sure, is like SEAL Team 6. All right, He's one of David's mighty men. He is a solid warrior. He is an elite force. He's one of the elite warriors in David's army. So late in the evening, David sees this lady bathing on the roof. Now, that's not necessarily out of the ordinary. Bathtubs would be on the roof because that's where you can get water warm. In fact, even if you drive over Israel today, you will see water heaters on the roof so that they are easily heated, more easily heated. So she is bathing on the roof, which is not necessarily out of the ordinary. And she is also, we're told, bathing for purity purposes, as a woman would do once a month. Now, that not only tells you that probably the time for procreating is getting near, but also tells you that this kid is David's, right? That when she says this to David, she is certain my husband has been in battle, and there is no doubt you are the father, all right? So it's very clear from the outset by the author's own admission that this is David's kid and not Uriah's. She's Uriah's wife, we're also told, which means that she is not only his wife, but she's also the daughter of Eliam, who is one of David's other mighty men. Another member of SEAL Team 6 is her dad. And not only that, but her, grand, her granddad is David's most trusted advisor, Ahithophel. So she's well known to David, or he at least knows who he thinks she might be as he sends to get word on confirmation of who she actually is. So once, she, once David finds out who, in fact, this lady is, he commands her to come to him. Now, what all of that should tell you is that she's most likely much younger than David. David, we're told, was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years, which means until he was 70. Most people think, just based on the way the events unfold, that this transpired somewhere around the middle of David's reign, probably close to about 20 years into his reign. That would make him around 40. And Bathsheba, just judging by the fact that she is the daughter of one of David's peers, is probably somewhere in her late teens and early 20s. So that makes, while that might, might be somewhat normal in that day and age, we would definitely identify David as a creepy old man on a roof. All right? There's no doubt about it. All right. So, but what, what do you notice in the passage? It tells us that just like Eve, David saw that the woman was good in appearance, and having seen that it was good, that she was good, he then took her into his house. That repeated phrase, he saw that she was good and he took her into his house, is reminiscent of exactly the way Eve saw the tree in the garden. She saw that it was good and she took it. The importance here for us, I think, is to spend just a moment diagnosing what's transpiring on this rooftop. 
between David and this innocent woman. Paul gives us a command in Romans 13, 13 to 14. He says this, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. There are several provisions of the flesh that it seems obvious that David makes here, and I think they're really important that we notice. First is being unprepared. Now, I'm going to be generous to David here, and I'm going to assume, because I have no reason to assume otherwise, that he didn't expect to walk out on his rooftop and see what he saw. I'm going to assume that he was innocent up to that point. All right? As possible, he had walked around the rooftop a number of other times and known that it was a possibility, and he walked out there. But I have no reason to see that in the text. So I'm going to assume David is caught unawares. He is unprepared for what is taking place. Second, obviously, David is alone, we're told. He's got an absence of people around him, particularly people that will tell him no. Now we're going to see in Joab, Joab's got many faults, all right? He is a saint by no means. But it is very obvious that Joab is willing to tell David no. He's also willing to go along with a lot of things that David does, too. But the point is, David has sent everyone away, and he is completely and totally alone, except for his servants that do his bidding. He sent the army away so he could sit home. And, and what is it that he's got to do? File a bunch of paperwork or something? What, what is he doing? It turns out, nothing. There's no good reason for it. It seems that he just does not want to go that he would rather live in the lap of luxury, I suppose. Third, we obviously see David engaging by being a willing participant in temptation. Now, once he sees what he sees, which I'll give him a pass on up to that point, once he sees what he sees, it's not as though he walks away from there, looks away, calls a friend, Sends a quick text message to one of his closest compatriots and says, get over here now. What does he do? Who is she? I want to know. Let's investigate the details. But perhaps even more than that, lying at root here is something that is not so obvious, which is pride. David calls one of his servants over and assumes that at his call, she will come and he can have her. And not only that, but his orders that follow in this passage will be unquestioned. You will do whatever I ask. Pride is all over this. And I think that is what's lying behind the statement from the author. Normally the kings go out to war at this time, and David stayed home. 
There's a pride underlying all of that. I'm God's king, and whatever I want, I get. Which God will address with him later. James 1, 13-15 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person, pay really close attention to this verse, but each person is tempted when he is lured and and enticed by Satan. Nope, that's not what it says. Lured and enticed by what is it? His own, what is it? His own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Temptation begins with desires that you have. These are not new things that someone outside force is bringing to you that you've never seen before or never been tempted by before. No, the temptation comes because of desires that you actually do have within you. That's why it's a temptation. But then the desire within you, given time and opportunity and thought, it conceives. And the word is is literally here like a pregnant woman conceives. Like a woman conceives to become pregnant. Your desire then becomes pregnant. Given time and opportunity. And it produces sin. That is what is conceived by your desire. But then once that sin is fully grown, meaning it's, it's lived with, it's dwelt on for a long period of time, it continues to plague you day in and day out. You continue to go back to it time and again. You nurture it and you feed that sin. It grows up into a full-grown adult, has the power of the sword, and it will kill you. Child devours his mother. In other words, I think James is saying that these sins start with desires. The desire produces little evidences every day in these sinful choices that you make. But it's important that you understand those sinful choices that you make on the regular are born out of desires you have. This is not, well, I stumbled into it one day. No, 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 no. You had an indwelling desire for it, and you chose it. And they produce little evidences every day of these sinful little choices, but then in the end, they will kill you. So every person that you'll find in the news or wherever that's caught in this massive, earth-shattering sin... There are always these moments when they interview, when the news interviews somebody, and they say, were there any signs about this? And they go, well, now that you mention it, right? There's always the now that you mention it moment, right? Well, this came out of nowhere. Well, now that you mention it. I had this conversation about a year ago, and I didn't think anything of it. Now, all of a sudden, that conversation makes a lot more sense. There's always these now that you mention it moments that pile up those moments those now that you mention it moments are the desires 
that are being nurtured on the regular, that are growing up and maturing before your very eyes until all of a sudden they kill it. You remember David started collecting a lot of wives, didn't he? This is one of those times where David falls and we go, you were just blessing Mephibosheth and you were just blessing the pagan king. And where did this, this came from nowhere. Now that you mention it, there, there were these moments before where David was like conquering a nation and then he like took another wife. And, and a lot of people will go, see, polygamy is okay in the Bible. Is it though? I don't think so. Because I think what's there is a trail of breadcrumbs. But David then was like sending people off to battle, which was fine. It seemed like he was staying home, and then sometimes he would go, and sometimes he would stay. And, and, and that, right? That was, that was fine. It's not a big deal that he stayed home. Well, now that you mention it, he was kind of in a habit of doing this lately. So it seems like what's happening here to David is what happens when desire is conceived and brings forth sin, and when sin is fully grown, it attempts to kill him. So the question then is, what's yours? What is the sin that you're nurturing? It doesn't have to be lust. It doesn't have to be pornography. It doesn't have to be adultery. Maybe alcoholism, workaholism, Pride, gossip. They're all the same. They're all born from desires that we have. You tell me gossip is not born from a desire you have to share the news? To be the one that breaks the story? You tell me that's not a desire that we all have, that we all share? Of course it is. And then it's entertained, and it's given air and oxygen, and it... And it, it is born, and then it's continued, it's propagated, it's perpetuated, it brings more people in, and all of a sudden, it will kill you. As we see in Revelation, gossips and slanderers are not in the kingdom of heaven. It's born from an indwelling desire. What is yours? What are the desires that are conceiving as we speak that are ready to give birth? Or perhaps they've already and perhaps they're growing up and you just continue to nurture them. There's a warning that is explicit and implicit in this text that if you continue to nurture it, it will kill you. What does it look like when it attempts, you, to, it makes an attempt on your life well, let's look what happens to David next. Look at verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why would you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, Pay really close attention. 
The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. David is laying it on thick. He wants Uriah to go home in hopes that he might cover his actions. That it might be unknown in the age of before paternity tests who was at fault here and Uriah might think he was. But Uriah stays on the porch with David's servants. And the explanation that he gives in verse 11, look really closely at it. The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I need to go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah wants to continue to live the lifestyle of the soldiers that are out in battle, which means basically abstinence while they're in war. Uriah wants to keep a wartime mentality, which it seems like David has all but abandoned. We're not at war. This is peacetime. Look at how I'm living in a time of peace. You're supposed to be at war, David. At the very least, shouldn't you be living in the mentality of war? The warning seems to fall on deaf ears. Twice he tries to get Uriah to cover for his sin, and twice Uriah denies him like a good soldier. So David takes matters into his own hands, or you might even say he takes matters into Uriah's hands. By putting his death notice, his papers for execution, in the hands of the one to be executed. Pride. Talk about the nerve of somebody. Not even sending a servant, but sending his execution papers in his own hands. Look at 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting. And then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David. Among the the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. You see, once he broke the tenth commandment in his heart, as he's standing on the roof dwelling on this lady, his outward actions then quickly escalate to the breaking of the seventh commandment and actually committing adultery. So he covets his neighbor's wife. Then he commits adultery. And finally, having broken all of those, it becomes very easy to break the sixth commandment, which is thou shalt not murder. In fact, here is how sin in David's life is beginning to bring forth death. Joab prepares his messengers with this big explanation about why he lost so many men in the skirmish. But when the explanation is given to David, listen to how David responds in verse 25. Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. 
For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. He's positively jubilant. Now, we don't get many glimpses into David's personal interactions with people, especially with the commanders of his armies and his interactions with Joab. We don't get tons of those little stories, but you can sense from Joab that he is preparing for a backlash from David, right? You kind of sense that? He gives this big, long speech. By, okay, well, if, if he goes off into a tirade and he starts saying this, that, and the other, and he starts bringing up Abimelech, you know who that is? The guy in Judges 9 who also killed his brothers and then went to the wall and he got crushed by a stone. If he brings up that guy, say, Uriah died too. I think Joab kind of knows what's going on here. David is intentionally murdering one of his brothers and wants to bring it to his attention. But the point is, he's preparing for this tirade for David to fly off into. And that tells us something particular, I think, that Joab knows about David. And that David does not like to lose men. He sees life as precious. And we've gone into war, and he's given me an explicit command to make sure that Uriah dies. And in the process, there was some collateral damage, and actually some other men died too. And I think David might be kind of upset about that, because David is normally very cautious about his men's life. Does David sound cautious about his men? Does David sound brokenhearted? No. How does sin, when it has conceived, bring forth death? What you find in David in his reaction to the death of his men is it's collateral damage. Such is life. It makes him numb to all of the other sin and all of the other death and all of the other tragedy that's around him. It makes him absolutely numb to all the things that should grieve his soul. He can't even feel it. You notice that it started with lust, but it ended in murder. It started in lust, and it ended with his senses, his emotional feeling, his spiritual sensitivity, being so dulled by the death of people that he didn't even care. How did lust get there? Well, when desire is conceived, it brings forth sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. It will start to kill off every other thing in your life. That's why the pornographer doesn't stop with pornography. But he goes into all other kinds of sins that he can imagine. Murder and the like. David's initial reaction to sin had so desensitized him to conviction that he was relieved rather than heartbroken that all of his men had, or many of his men, had died. This story, unfortunately, begins the last half of the book of Samuel, of 2 Samuel. And it's the beginning of, David's, of the fall of David's kingdom. But this is precisely why David is not the true king that God had promised to his people, even though he showed so much promise early on. You see, David's actions here in this story are actually anti-gospel. They're the opposite of the gospel. David is here saying to these messengers from Joab, better that the many men die for the one than the whole nation perish. 
He's standing here in front of these servants saying, it's fine that all these men died because at least it saved my neck. That is the exact opposite of the gospel. In David, the nation comes to serve him, which I will just remind you, ironically, is exactly what the prophet Samuel told them they would, would happen when they asked for a king in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Do you remember that far back? Way back in your memory? The people are demanding a king, and they want a king who will do what? Go out before us in battle and fight for us. And we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and where is David? At home while the armies are out fighting for him. Samuel tells them, you think a king is going to be awesome, but I'm going to tell you what he's going to do. The king is going to take your daughters to serve his needs. And he's going to take your sons, and he's going to put them in service of his military. Which is exactly what we see David doing here in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David has become everything that was feared would take place in Samuel's warning. Samuel's point is that eventually you will be serving his needs and he will become the center of his own universe and you will just be in orbit around his ego. That's precisely what's taking place here. But this is the opposite of the gospel because in Christ, God's true king, what do we see? But a person coming who says by his own mouth he comes not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, when Jesus comes, he turns the very notion of God's king on its head. And he becomes a very anti-type of what David ultimately is. He turns the notion of the king on its head. He having no sin, he having no sin of his own, needs no one to die for him so that he might live. Instead, he is righteous and goes to the cross, bearing the wrath of God, dying in place of the many. He alone goes out to the battle. He alone faces the forces of death and sin. He dies for the many. Finally, quickly, we see God's displeasure. 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Interesting little statement at the end, right? It doesn't just leave off there and go into chapter 12 where the prophet Nathan confronts David in his sin. No. Gives this little phrase right there at the end of the chapter. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Literally was evil to the Lord. See, what David had forgotten is that even though he could get away with all these sins, even though he thought, okay, I've covered all my tracks, no one knows what exactly happened but me. Not even Joab. He knows that there was a command that Uriah died, but he does not know why. No one knows with, but me. It will live and die with me. What David has forgotten is that the Lord sees. So the question then comes to us. How is it that we begin to put to death the lust of the flesh? So here is this conceived child. 
that we have been nurturing, how do we now kill it? How do we put this sin to death? This doesn't just apply to sex, obviously, and that kind of temptation. It applies to any temptation that we might find. There's several things that we can see directly in this passage that are wise to avoid. First of all, avoid being unprepared. In other words, don't ever say, I didn't expect this. I didn't, I, I didn't know that this would happen. Did you not? Are you not taking inventory of your desires? Know what your desires are and don't ever say, I didn't expect this. Always be prepared. Avoid being unprepared. Avoid being alone. Don't get to the point in your isolation when you say, I need this. i got to have this. And there's no one there to tell you no. Is it a coincidence that after God creates man, He says about man, it is not good that man should be alone. You need help avoid being alone. Avoid being a willing participant in temptation. In other words, don't ever get to the point where you start to think about that movie or about that, that image or about that picture or about that drink or about that work or whatever it is. Well, this won't affect me. I'll be, I'll be fine. I can, I can make it through this one. This will, this will be fine. This is minor. This is okay. I, I can do it. Which gets to the next thing. Avoid pride. The ultimate sign of danger is when you begin to think, you know what, I, I deserve this. Really. I, I deserve this. I mean, I, I'm a man, after all. What can you really expect of me? I, I need this. I've got to have this. That's pride, is all it is. Avoid thinking this is anonymous. The point of this passage is no matter what, God sees and He knows and you can never be so good on the front end that all of a sudden your sin becomes tolerant to God. Absolutely not. See, here's the problem though. All of these are obviously wise ways to avoid sin. They're directly in the passage, things David falls prey to that we should obviously look at and say, you've got to avoid those things. But you understand all of these methods of avoidance are going to ultimately fail you. No matter what obstacle you put up, you can tear down. If you can put up the obstacle, you can tear it down. Do you know why? Because there is something that all of these acts of avoidance need in order to actually work. They need a desire to avoid sin first before any of them will work. There has to be a desire in you to avoid sin first before any of the obstacles will ever work. Because, right, it is a desire that is in you first. You think David didn't know that God sees all his deeds? Did you, do you think he didn't know? What the commandments said? You think he didn't know the law of God? That you shouldn't murder? You think he didn't know that? Of course he knew it. He knew he should avoid murder. Why didn't he? 
Because the law is insufficient to produce righteousness. That's why. There has to be a desire first before any of the prohibitions of God will ever take root. The problem is David didn't care about them. And when we indulge in those passions that are in our hearts, we don't care about them either. I can tell you avoid all these things. Here are the wise things to do. Here are the unwise things. I can lay out a whole list as we've done and you will transgress every single one of them to get to the sin that you desire because deep down you want it. That's why. See, cultivating a heart that cares about sin is first and foremost a work that God does in salvation. So all we like sheep have gone astray. Every single one of us are subject to the wrath of God rightly because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. All of us are lost in sin. Our hearts are bent towards it. The only thing that corrects that bent is God's Spirit that He puts within us. You must be saved first, in other words. And the only way salvation can ever be had is by the grace of God. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive. That's the only way. But second, it's an ongoing process then, Christian. A work of His Spirit through sanctification. And that sanctifying process, that process where you grow to get a distaste for your sin is something that grows over time and it starts with repentance. It starts with repentance. Do you know why? Because very simply, repentance is humiliating. Literally, it humbles you. When you confess your sin, both to those that are affected by it and to God, It brings your sin out into the open because part of what kills you about sin is secrecy. Bringing sin into the light through repentance and confession to God is what puts it to death. And continually repenting of sin is what kills it rather than it kills you. But then your sanctification continues through the ordinary means of grace that God has given to you. You see, prayer and Bible reading and church membership and baptism and the Lord's Supper and even small groups and prayer meetings, all of these things are not checkboxes. Though if you're using them as a way of trying to get God in your corner, they do seem like checkboxes to you, but that will never work. These aren't checkboxes. The reason that we do these things is because they're ways of cultivating your relationship with Christ. Now, why is it that you would want your relationship with Christ to be cultivated and grown and matured? Because the more in love you fall with your Savior, the less in love you fall with your sin. Plain and simple. As you grow closer to Christ, you necessarily flee from Satan. And when you resist the devil, he will flee. But you can't resist the devil unless you draw near to God. And when you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. 
See, in the sober moments, the right now moments, the times right now where you go, well, he had me dead to rights. I'm just like David there. In those moments, when temptation is currently not in your face, and you're being confronted by the Word of God, and your desires and your sin, all the sins in your past are are sitting there on your heart, and you're recognizing them all, right now is the time to cultivate your relationship with Christ. Right now is the time to repent. Not later. Now is the time to repent. You see, grow in your desires for Him every single day so that in the day of temptation, you will want to be wise. That's the goal. We want to want to be wise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that often our hearts are far from you. And like David, we have been there and maybe are there now. We see that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Against our own flesh, even. We often don't understand our enemy, and like David, we are living often in peacetime when we should be living at war. Forgive us. But we want to be a church that wants to desire you that wants to be wise, that hungers and thirsts for righteousness deep down. We want that to fuel our obedience, a desire for you, a desire to experience the joy that you have for us in Christ. There are many, I'm sure, within the sound of my voice, who cannot fathom that joy in your family can supersede the temporary pleasures that they find in the world. And I pray that you would awaken their soul to their need for Christ. Only you can do that, Lord, I pray you would. For the All the rest of us who are here, we we want to follow Christ. We know there is joy aplenty in Christ. I pray that you would make that palpable to us. Please, Lord, revive us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.